Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each week, we interview a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet. All right, we're here today for our second episode with Mark Stoll, professor of American environmental history and American religious history at Texas Tech. Our last interview was focused around Stoll's new book, Profit, and is similar to others you may have heard on our show. But in that conversation, and even just looking at Mark's biography, we really felt there was another thread to explore here of some consequence, and that is his expertise on religion and its relation to environmental movements. First, a bit of background on him for those of you who may not have listened to part one, and then we'll dive straight into our questions. As I said, he's a professor at Texas Tech University and also serves as Director of Environmental Studies. He has a bachelor's degree in history and German from Rice University and a PhD in history from the University of Texas at Austin. In addition to Profit, just to tee us up for this session, he has written two books about the American environmental movement's significant formative religious influences. The first book, published in 1997, was Protestantism, Capitalism and Nature in America. And the second one published in 2015 was Inherit the Holy Mountain, Religion and the Rise of American Environmentalism. He may be one of the world's leading experts on this topic. So we're going to start from the beginning, which is, how did you get interested in religious history? Does this relate to your upbringing in some fashion? It does. I was raised in a religious household. Both my parents, uh, particularly my father, uh, were religious. I was raised um, in the Presbyterian Church, which uh, this is back in the days when mainline denominations truly were mainline denominations. I've <laughs> declined to, I don't know, practically irrelevant today. So pretty standard upbringing for the 1950s and 60s. I, the religious upbringing did not take. <laughs> By my teens, I had... I think the appropriate word would be lapsed. So I am a lapsed Presbyterian. But because of my religious upbringing um, and the fact that I'm a good student, I paid attention in Sunday school and I knew a lot about religion and uh, acquired a lot of interest in it. And so in my travels, I spent 1980, I was age 25. I spent uh, like eight months in India and Sri Lanka and... Uh, was quite interested in visiting ashrams and temples and a Buddhist monastery uh, on the southwest in Dodandua, uh, in southwest Sri Lanka, where I was there for three weeks, I think. So, and whenever I'm traveling in Europe, I like to stop at churches and cathedrals, and yeah, you know, I continue to have a fascination with religion and in all its its aspects. So. That explains my interest in religion, and um, since I'm not an active believer, it's more from my academic interest, or uh, I don't know, something in me that <laughs> has this sort of perpetual interest in religious uh, belief, and religious practice around the globe. My journey from a different cultural background is similar to yours, so I can very much understand the continuing interest despite being lapsed, as it were. Do you find that as you get older, you, and this is a very personal question, so you don't have to answer it, but, but you don't have to answer any questions, but uh, this is a personal one. 
Do you find that as you get older, the attractions of religion are sort of re-manifesting themselves or not really? Not really. I did for a while, particularly when I was younger, kind of miss it in some way and kind of uh, wish that I could believe it, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. I just have lacked the, the ability to an interest in actually believing. So it's, it's really kind of out of reach. And as the older I get, the less, less I feel that. Right. So, and, and I, you know, occasionally do like when for my parents, my parents passed away 2019 and 2021 and went back to the church where I had spent many hours back in late sixties, early seventies. And it was, had grown very foreign to me. Right. From an academic point of view, it's one thing, but to participate, it's, yeah, it was, yeah, as I said, it lost its appeal. Right, right. I didn't even feel like these were my people anymore, if you know what I mean. Okay, well, right there, we've got episode three, but we'll come back to that later. (laughs) We're going to dive into the supposed main thread of our podcasts, which is environmentalism. Research has found that highly religious Americans, this may come as a surprise to some people, are far less likely than other U.S. adults to express concern about, for instance, warming temperatures around the globe. But in fact, environmentalism and religion have not always been perceived or have been at odds. When did that shift happen and what caused it? Well, it's, there's a slow development there. If you go back to, say, Earth Day, the first Earth Day, 1970, I don't think there was any religious opposition whatsoever from any corner. Hmm. And you have in the early 70s, uh, Southern Baptist Convention, that virtually every major denomination uh, passing resolutions out that we have to do something about this environmental crisis. So some are stronger than others, but the, I think with the politiz- politicization of the religious right in the late 70s and the 1980s, politics begins to seep in, mm-hmm. and, uh, particularly as the politics affects the laity. It was not so much led by the, the, the church uh, leadership or the, the ministers, like say in the Southern Baptist Convention, but rather they were feeling pressure from their congregations Interesting. to not speak up about environmentalism. And by the 1990s, they had moved into opposition camp. Right. So you can find plenty of people who said the exact opposite things 10 years apart, 1980s and 1990s. Wow. So it's really driven by politics, much more than believers understand, I think. Or perhaps a link to, you know, what scripture says and so on. As, as you say, it, this comes bottoms up. Yes. Yeah, they, they go searching for scriptures to back up their position. Having <laughs> changed their mind, it's like, okay, somewhere a scripture must support me. Right. Uh, then you go cherry picking through the Bible. Got it. So bottom uh, so line is... I think that it just political opposition to environmentalism, particularly funded by corporations who are being affected by that, is very effective in moving the churches, uh, the already conservative churches, more conservative. 
fascinating. Well, we're, we're going to continue exploring. And here, I want to come closer to your thesis in Inherit the Holy Mountain, your book from 2015. And there you've honed in, you know, we tend to think of religions, even when we belong to them as these monolithic things. But the reality is denominations vary widely. And denominations of Christianity and their differences, you honed in on how these affect environmental worldviews. I think for our audience, it would be useful if we got a few examples of differences between how Christian denominations have thought our thinking about the environment and the consequences that flow from that. Sure. Now, you know, I'm a historian, and so this, this is a book of history of how environmentalism develops. Yeah. And you have to also be aware that denominations develop right. and, and uh, evolve. So the churches, as they were in the 19th century, is very, very different from the way exact same denomination would be today. Although there is something cultural that remains the same, but there, a lot of the other things can change. But I, to get at what you're asking, uh, you could see a strong difference between certain denominations in the way they think about the individual, society, and nature, hmm. and the relationship between the three. I can, for example, coming out of the Calvinist tradition in particular, the traditional, the old Calvinist churches, uh, which in the United States became the Congregational Church, which is the old Puritan Church, mm-hmm. which today is known as, for a couple of mergers later, as the United Church of Christ, UCC, mm-hmm. the Presbyterian Church. And you know, Presbyterians are very notoriously schismatic, so there's all kinds of Presbyterian churches. <laughs> but okay. uh, come out of you know this, this Calvinist background, and the Calvinist idea was to, to need it to reform that the Bible was a, a model for everything. And in the Bible, you would find a model for how you should behave, a model for the family, a family, a model for the community, for government, for society, for culture. It's, it's very, Calvin was a very totalistic kind of um, theology, mm-hmm. more than Luther or any of the other Protestants, or certainly the Catholics. Very interesting. So it meant we have to change everything to make it godly. And this is what the Puritans had in mind when they were setting up their godly society in New England. So it's um, a church that would work hand in glove with the authorities, with the magistrate, with um, your local government or your your state government, or originally colony government. So there's a a trust and and a reliance on government to do things, particularly to restrain sin. Okay. Stuff that was sinful, dangerous to the community. It was up to the government to restrain that to benefit the, or benefit the whole. Well, then you get people who secede from that, okay. like the, the Baptist most strongly. Are they Baptist church originally comes out of New England and out of the, the Puritan. We, we think of it as a southern thing, but it moved south. It didn't start there. But it comes, it's kind of re the dissenters to this idea of this totalistic thing. It's like, no, it's not, it's not what the Bible says. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus completely focuses on the behavior of the individual. And so you rely on the individual. Right. You, what we're going to do is we're going to evangelize everybody in the world. 
as soon as they all have Jesus in their hearts, they will all behave like perfect Christians and we'll have the godly society. Right. So it has to be from bottom up and it's very individualistic and it's, we don't use the government. And you could see this in the different approaches to, yes, we need the government to restrain the evil corporations who are trying to, you know, rape the landscape and cut down all our forests and, you know, leave us in a polluted mess versus no, it's let's everybody recycle, everybody drive an electric car. Right. right. You know, that can also segue into just opposition to environmental regulations altogether. So this is very strong amongst amongst the Baptists. Also Methodists tend to be in that camp. And very much in the twentieth beginning of the twentieth century we get to the charismatic, the uh, Pentecostal tradition, which is extremely focused on getting the spirit, very individualistic, right. very experiential. And uh, I can't really discern any social ethic whatsoever in the Pentecostal tradition. Uh, and they certainly have not produced any significant environmental thing. I mean, one obvious question that arises from what you just said is what is missing? And I guess what is missing that maybe you can comment on is the Catholic Church. Catholic Church is, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You would think it would be more in the trust government, really, you know. Yes, precisely. Yeah. But I don't know exactly what to ascribe to it, ascribe it to, but perhaps it's because most of the Catholics who came to this country were not from the ruling classes. Right. Not from the upper classes, not from the educated classes, but rather as the very poor Catholics from Sicily and Italy and Poland and Ireland and so on and Mexico that come here. And they have a very bottom-up kind of view of things. Uh, interesting. Very is, interesting. Yeah. I don't want the government telling me what to do. That's what they told me. That's how it was back in Europe. You know, we had a very hierarchical society there, and I'm right. tired of being told what to do. So you know, they're much more kind of in the, the Baptist camp. We'll trust everybody to, you know, if we could get everybody to think properly, think right. It's, again, this kind of evangelical kind of attitude. There was a recent book that came out about the history of this group in Chicago during the 1950s, 1960s, that was trying to overcome racism in Chicago, racial problems. And the problem was is that they never really got along very well with the African-American community because they were, this is their attitude, if everybody will just accept Jesus and accept this idea, racism is bad, then it'll go away. Right you will wait a very long time before that ever happens. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing, but it's out of sadness. And it's the same way with everybody having Jesus in their heart or whatever. It hasn't happened yet, and I'm not holding my breath. Well, it's very interesting, as the way you've just laid this out is a good segue into the next question, which is there's this broad spectrum of beliefs that vary by denomination as it relates to environmentalism. This is a bit of a softball question, which is, to what degree does that distribution of views by denomination reflect how powerful those denominations are in American society? Well, this is a complicated question. I'm sure. None of these are easy questions. If we look at the the Congregationalists of the 19th century, and from Congregationalism 
came the first movements for parks, the first calls, well, the strongest calls for conservation, for forestry. Yep. Pretty much congregationalists were, were leading all of that. But you will not find, for example, a congregationalist president. Right. Very uh, interesting. So they are not very good politicians. <laughs> but they, they're coming out of this. The Puritans have a kind of specific way of thinking about things that's very much shaped by their history, that they were a very village-oriented culture in the you know, during the Puritan colony era. And they visualized society in terms of the town regulating itself, having one church, which would be the congregational church, and everybody belonging to that and everybody working for the common good. But it doesn't train them very well to try to lead, you know, go get into national politics. So we're going to look at, I mean, we have John Adams with one term and is not looked upon as a very successful president. His son sneaks in, John Quincy Adams, and then that's the last congregationalist we have until of all people, Cal Coolidge, it comes from a much more conservative, by the 20th century, the denomination, actually early 20th century, the denomination, which is today extraordinarily liberal, was getting really conservative. So I went this kind of through this very conservative phase and get Calvin Coolidge. But other than that, really, and he got to be president because he was vice president, not because he won it, you know, in an open election. In a fair and free election. Yeah, which he did. You know, as soon as he was president, he was reelected, but that's a sneaky way to get in <laughs> to win an election. So, it's, but uh, you have a different group with the Presbyterians who are coming from a, a culture that believed in preaching to power and very much criticizing power and, and trying to get you know, your godly society from the top down. So they were used to, where in Scotland, used to working with um, the king and queen, and the powers, um, and constantly fighting with them. So when they, they brought that over here to the United States in that gigantic Scottish migration here that really infused life into the Presbyterian church here. And they are much better at... Uh, politics. And so you get a period, uh, particularly in the progressive era, late 19th, early 20th century, in which they have the presidency one after the other. From Benjamin Harrison to Woodrow Wilson, they're all Presbyterians except for uh, Taft, who was a Unitarian, and then we have a Methodist, McKinley. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that just, under them, the whole system of National parks is established, uh, yep. but this national forest is established, and uh, a lot of government kind of top down making America's use of its resources righteous. Right. Interesting. In that right. period. And then since yeah. Woodrow Wilson, we have had no Presbyterian president. Wow. It's been, that's it. <laughs> so they had their moment and they're very influential. I mean, they like, use their moment. Think. To the extent that you care about the environment, they, they use their moment. And it wasn't only the environment, you know, that they uh, passed antitrust. Yeah. And so there was definitely this moment where they affected America. And you cannot think of the New Deal without it being thought of as kind of an uh, extension of the progressive era, Theodore Roosevelt. And then have kind of comes back again in the 1960s with the Great Society. And that seems to be the last gasp of it. That is a good, I mean, to the extent that one agrees that that is the last gasp of it, it's a good segue to our next question, which is, 
You say in the closing chapters of Inherit the Holy Mountain that African-American congregations, Catholics, whom we just touched on briefly, Jews, whom we did not touch on, all these groups and others have influenced the environmental movement in the second half of the 20th century and now well into the 21st. I mean, to state the brilliantly obvious, our societies are more multicultural than ever before. And as someone who spends a lot of time around the world, I would argue that today's America may be the most multicultural society, perhaps in human history. We can debate that one, but certainly I, I, I sense Very possible, yes. What kind of cultural or religious admixture is there in contemporary environmental beliefs that maybe pulls in from all of these places? I have a hard time kind of identifying anything in particular. We've kind of moved into the more personal, individualistic kind of direction. Yes. Uh, all three of these traditions have a tendency towards that. It's, and I should mention, this is a, a part of a broader movement, the Democratic Party as a whole. If you look at the leadership, say, Congress or the White House, Catholic, Jews, African-Americans. Right. It's, it's like, where, what happened to the white Protestants? They're like... Yeah. We also have some Indian-Americans floating around, by the way. There are. Curiously, I think the most prominent ones are on the conservative side. That is the just because they're the loudest voices. <laughs> but, but, you know, Kamala is half Indian. Um, yes. And there's a litany of Democrats. And, and the point is not so much Indian Americans. The point is there is this diversity. And I mean that in a neutral sense of stating the obvious. There is this diversity. Are they all aligned in some direction as it relates to the environment? Or, or as you say, does this ultimately come back to a much more individualistic society? And so it's this bottoms-up movement. It seems to be very bottoms-up. But uh, we are moving in the right direction slowly, probably too slowly, but surely, regarding climate change. Right. Moving very, very gradually there. But it is moving in the right direction, finally, after, what, James Hansen warned Congress in, what, 88 or whatever it was, of the, the problems of global warming. And it's like, oh, maybe he was right. I think Hansen was still alive to, <laughs> to witness this kind of his uh, vindication. But before we leave the Indian Americans, yes, it is true that I think that they are, the polls show them to be either kind of moderate liberal as a group. It is just every, almost every Indian American politician I can think of, though, is, is on the right for some reason. Well, you know, and this, this is a good conversation to have because sitting where I sit, most of them are on the left. The ones on the right are very loud indeed, and one of them is running for president, and so gets in a lot of places. But there's a coterie of California guy, right? What's his name? So there's Ro Khanna, who is who is a congressman here near where I live and whom I know. But there's there's a small set of others. There are four or five Indian Americans in Congress, and they're all they're all Democrats. But the one running for president is very much on the right. I'm going to move us to our final question because I, I could talk endlessly about the peculiarities of the Indian American community. Maybe that's episode four, but just to, just to stay with our times, our times, you know, we, we live in our times and we have to deal with them. You've noted that 
and we began with a very personal statement, more or less to this effect. Quote, a strong religious upbringing leaves distinctive traces in everything people do as adults, no matter what religious beliefs, or none at all, they adopt later. This is a time when many people believe themselves to be free of religious influence. Captains of our own fate. Captains of our own fate. And you and I are both lapsed religious people. You've embraced the idea that you may be a lapsed religious person, but you are not necessarily free of that influence of your childhood. And I share that. Are there other ways in which, no matter how lapsed you are, these religious ideas, ideals reveal themselves in our society? You know, is it somewhere there deep down? It just, we have to look for it in the world around us. It does seem to be, you know, kind of buried in us and does get transmitted to our children. Right. How many generations this will be transferred and in what form it will end up, it's hard to say. I did, for example, gave a talk, oh gosh, 20 years ago, uh, gave a paper at a, at a conference on the influence of on ideas about nature. If you were for Jews, so if you write really, really, you know, uh, raised in a Jewish home, even if you're not practicing Jew as a, an adult, what sort of typical attitudes you had? And after the after my paper, one of the audience members came up to me and was disturbed by this because she had, she was a convinced environmentalist, but she had thought that she came to her environmentalism, you know, purely intellectually, you know, because it's the right thing to do and rational, et cetera. But she said, I had described her perfectly that both of her parents had been raised Jewish, but both of them were atheists. Okay. So it is a, a, a wonderful confirmation of the ability of, these ways of framing, these moral ways of framing the, the world get passed on even without explicit theological or religious traditions framing them for you. I mean, there is... Now, there this is, is probably we're getting into psychology things, but yeah. The nice thing about our podcast is we can talk about anything we want. So that's... And this is just super, <laughs> super interesting stuff, period. I guess... I mean, stop me if I read this wrong, but as you described the presidencies of the end of the 19th century and the early 20th and the massive effect they had on actual stuff that got done about the environment at scale, I almost sensed a little longing, a certain nostalgia. Was that just me overreading into what you were saying? Well, I do miss that sense of purpose that... That sense of duty that we must do this, that this is the moral thing to do, uh, yep. it's, it drove these people. The other thing is, of course, the denominations were so much stronger back then. And right. so when they spoke, the audience was there to listen and respond right. Right. so that you know, this was something that affected all of society. So there is kind of a nostalgia for that. I don't yeah. know if the if I was around back time, then if the endless self-righteousness and censoriousness would have driven me nuts, <laughs> that's part of it, you know? That is part of it. And, you know, just navigating through, as a historian, you've got to set yourself apart from the good and the bad. 
but there was much goodness in that era, and there was there was badness to deal with, as there are there is yeah. in ours. As there, there Certainly, is. no perfect era, I and mean, they had their blind spots. Um, race, for example. Yes, no question, no question. You know, and and our podcasts are about climate and the environment, and so we tend to focus on that as a narrow thread, but. You know, the environment exists in an environment, and that environment doesn't have nothing but good in it. Mark, this is the best 30 minutes of a month for me. You have been enormously kind with your reflections and insights. I would urge folks to read both of your books. Actually, one quick question before we leave. Are you working on a book for the future? I am still trying to form an idea for the book. Um, Possibly the book would be kind of what I've hinted at, that... This is not just an environmentalist kind of thing that you could, I, I could also trace just the history of liberalism back to these indirect, unconscious religious roots. Because you find that the women's movement and the, the abolition movement and you know, so many of 19th century and 20th century progressive, what we call called kind of a general progressive uh, causes, came out of these same churches. And so you can see also there's an evolution of liberalism or progressivism in this this country that parallels this pathway of environmentalism. So it's tempting to kind of go back and and write a, a similar book about that. That sounds wildly interesting. And if you write it, we will read it and we will come talk to you about it. I want to thank you. You've been very gracious and kind with your time. And I right, thank you very much for inviting me to talk. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Please email us at climate at amasia.vc with any suggestions or ideas. And visit inourhands.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information. Mm-hmm.